And we're live. Hello, and welcome to Author Spotlight. I'm Rachel Barenbaum, author of the brand new novel, Atomic Anna. And today, I feel unbelievably lucky that we have the one and only Kate Quinn joining me. Oh my God. Her newest book, The Diamond Eye, is unbelievable run. Do not walk to buy a copy and just block out your whole day because you're going to want to read it in one sitting. It is that good. Kate, thank you so much for joining me. No, thank you so much for having me. I could not be happier to be here. Oh, I'm so thrilled to have you back on my show. Um, so I'm just going to read your quick bio in case there's anybody in the world that doesn't know you yet. Week three on the New York Times bestseller list for this beauty. Hopefully three of many weeks to come. Here we go. Kate Quinn is a New York Times and USA Today bestselling author of historical fiction, a native of Southern California. She attended Boston University, where she earned bachelor's and master's degrees in classical voice. A lifelong history buff, she has written four novels in the Empress of Rome saga and two books set in the Italian Renaissance before turning to the 20th century with The Alice Network, The Huntress, and The Rose Code. She was on the show for Rose Code. All have been translated into multiple languages. She and her husband now live in California with three black rescue dogs. Kate, I'm just I'm so excited. I have like pages and pages of questions, but we will cut off at a hard 30 minutes. To start off, can you please tell me and all of our listeners, what is The Diamond Eye about? Uh, in a nutshell, it is about a unsung heroine of, of Ukraine during World War II. It is a woman who was a single mother, a graduate student, a uh, library researcher before Hitler invaded her country and sent her life in a different path. And she ended up becoming not only the most uh, effective female sniper during World War II, but in all of recorded history that we know of. And then if that wasn't enough, she gets sent to the United States in 1942 on a goodwill tour. And, you know, just as one does, becomes BFFs with Eleanor Roosevelt. So quite a life. And it's unbelievable. <laughs> and based on a real life woman, like unbelievable. I can't, when you first told me about this book last time, when I interviewed you for Rose Code, I was just stunned and couldn't wait to get my hands on a copy. Um, and the book does not disappoint. I'm, I just want to say this one more time. This is about a real life woman who was a sniper, <laughs> a sniper, right? Uh, in the Soviet army. So um, I do want to mention the elephant in the room before we get started. Of course, this book is about an invasion of Ukraine, Hitler's army invasion, invading Ukraine. And we are today, of course, living through another invasion of Ukraine. So Kate, uh, could you just talk about that eeriness for a moment? Oh, yes. Um, I had no idea this book would be so topical when it first came out. In fact, I used to get quite discouraged when I would be talking about it to people and they would have no idea where Ukraine was and no idea that Ukraine was not part of Russia. And I'd just be like, oh, God, no, 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 no. Now I have must say everybody knows where Kiev is and everyone knows that Ukraine is not, in fact, part of Russia. So progress. Um, progress. But yes, I had no idea that this book would be quite so topical and of current if current interest when I wrote it. But the fact is, is that, you know, Mila Pavlichenko, you know, she was a Ukrainian woman. She was part of the Soviet Union uh, at the time when she was alive. She did not really question that. Uh, it was something that, you know, although Ukraine had suffered immensely, you know, her father was Russian. She believed in, you know, she believed in, a, in the Russian system. And, you know, that's just the water in which she was, she breathed the air she was born in. Um, but the fact is, is that she was a Ukrainian woman. She was born in Ukraine. All of her fighting was done on Ukrainian soil in defense of Ukrainian civilians. So 
when I talk about her, even though she is fighting the Red Army, she, in, under the Red Army, she was fighting a, a war of defense. Her homeland had been invaded. It was push the Nazis back or else see her son grow up in a world in which he was in the Hitler youth being taught to Sig Heil. So her fight was in defense. Her fight was in defense of Ukrainian civilians and soil. And so I know, I mean, it is my firm belief that if she was alive today, she would absolutely be on the, those civilian front lines like the brave men and women we are reading about in the headlines. And she would be defending Ukraine again from another invasion, this one from Russia. Because, and it's one thing that I do love is that how much modern day Ukraine has embraced her as a national heroine of their own. And if you don't believe me, anytime you see an online article about, you know, Lyudmila Pavlchenko, you know, the Russian female sniper, go to the comments section. And one of those comments you will always see is, um, she was Ukrainian and yeah. she was. Yeah. Amazing. So well said. Um, and I love that you brought up a point that you make often in the book also that she is standing up and right fighting off invaders that these people have come into her country, right? She didn't volunteer for a war and go out to invade. They have come to her, um, come to her country and she stood up. And one of the reasons she stands up is she's a single mother and she has a son and she wants to be both father and right mother to this boy um, as she's raising him. And I just loved that image that she felt the need to fill both of those roles. Talk about putting weight on women, which is already there in the first place. Can you talk about that dual role and as she saw it? Well, it is the idea, as I first came into talking about this book and trying to understand how can I make this woman, this, you know, Soviet superwoman character, you know, understandable and empathetic to an American audience, you know, a 21st century audience. And, you know, really the thing that made me empathize the most with her is the fact that like many women, she was already taking on a superhuman amount of duties and pressure before she then ended up, you know, at the front lines of a war and becoming a war heroine. And really that is because, you know, she was a mom. She was made a mother far too young of an age. You know, she got mixed up with a bad man as very young girls sometimes do. And he had no business messing with a 15 year old and he did. And she was a teenage mother. She was married for a very brief time. Her husband very quickly decided, you know, being a father and a husband wasn't for him and walked out on her and their baby. And then you have this woman who, you know, is her life could be destroyed at that point, you know, because it's tumbled off the tracks of all her plans. But she decided it was not going to be, you know, she was raising her child. She was going to night school. She had a full-time job. She was getting a degree. She was going to be a historian. She was doing everything. And she was bearing this immense burden by herself. And I thought, you know, that is the kind of woman we see all the time. You know, the young mom at the edge of the playground, you know, who's like going over her notes from class and keeping yeah. an eye on her kid at the same time. And she's had way too little sleep to be doing either of those things, but she's doing it. And that's what made me think, you know, this woman was already superwoman before she picked up a rifle. Right. It's just, she's superwoman in that quiet, way that so many moms are where they're they're shouldering way too much yeah. and they're they're never letting themselves off the hook and they're so hard on themselves and they're still managing to stagger along under this huge burden of the pressure of trying to do everything right yeah. and so that was what made me think this woman is not so different from all of us i love she, that she really wasn't like yes she she had a tally of 309 men that she killed in less than you know 18 months. That's but the official tally. Already, right? And that's and the official probably tally. Many, there many, many more. more. 
Yeah, for sure. But she so, was already superwoman to me. Amazing. Mm-hmm. So I just wanted to ask about, you know, um, she is this superwoman, but there's also this very quiet line of abuse in in her relationship with the father and the husband, right? I mean, he wasn't physically abusive, but in the sense of he was refusing to, um, you know, be divorced. He didn't show up for the divorces, right? And he physically stood over her as so much taller. And we see her growing throughout the book as she sort of comes into her own, right? And realizes that she can fight and stand up against him. I'm not going to give any spoilers away, except to say that you do this beautiful job of showing her growing against this and fighting, right? And coming out of this, horrible relationship. And you do this with all of your characters, all of the women in your books, which is why I love them so much. Can I would love to hear you talk about how you thought about that character growth and how you brought Mila from this 15-year-old, right, <laughs> who has a baby with this horrible man and how she grows into the woman that she becomes. Well, you know, like many women, you know, she has the whole thing of like, you just got to not make waves. You know, you mm-hmm. got to just go get along, go along to get along. And, you know, she has this ex-husband who, you know, like anybody who's ever had a toxic ex, you know, they have the ability to jerk your chain and get under your skin in a way that nobody else does. And this man, you know, he loves jerking her around just because it's fun. You know, like he doesn't show up to the divorce hearing. He's, Mm -hmm. you know, he's a little, he's, he's not physically abusive, but you know, he's belittling to her. He's constantly, you know, just chipping away at her self-esteem and putting her down in subtle ways. You know, and it's like, it's the thing that makes her blood pressure go up. But at the same time, she knows I can't piss him off. I can't piss him off. I want him to be, you know, not make trouble for me until she finally hits the point of, you know, I don't have time for this crap anymore. I've got a war to fight. I have an invasion to handle. I am not, I do not have time for your BS anymore. And then his surprise, like, you know, many abusers is that wait, you're not scared of me anymore. You're, you're, you've grown past me. You're not allowed to do that. But you know, she, in the end, you know, he's the first enemy that she has, you know, in the sense of this boulder that's always in her path. But, you know, she comes to deal with so much more than him that she realizes in the end that like, he's not a boulder, he's a pebble. And he's, I can kick him out of the way anytime I want. And how and when she does that, no spoilers, I have to say it was one of the more satisfying things I've ever It had. was amazing. I was cheering in my seat. I was on the train as I read that scene. And okay. I will say too, it's like I had a review of like a guy who said something like, this guy was way too evil. He just seemed way too over the top. And I, and, but the funny thing was, is most women I know who've read this book have said, I so know a guy like yeah. that. In fact, I know a lot of them. This guy is very common. There's a lot of them on Twitter. <laughs> Oh, I bet. I'm sorry you see them, but absolutely. I thought he was a hundred thousand percent real. Um, okay. So I wanted to read to you, uh, one of my favorite sections in this book. It's on page 157. If anyone actually has the book, um, And it goes to Mila's appearance because people are always questioning, did this woman actually shoot that many people? So you wrote, so Kostya and I bumped into this half-sister Nina in Irkutsk. He barely knew her himself, but he introduced me. That girl just about gave me nightmares. Little feral thing with eyes like razors, practically picking her teeth with a human bone, absolutely capable of tearing your throat out with her bare hands. That is the kind of woman you imagine when you hear the words woman sniper with 200 kills. Some kind of wild thing from the Siberian wastes with icy eyes and no more conscience than a wolf. And Mila says, what leads you to conclude that? Why imagine that's what a woman sniper would be, cold, unemotional, and savage? 
You don't know me or any other woman sniper. So what makes you think we have to be a certain way or look a certain way? Beautiful, Kate. That is like a woman in, right? <laughs> like in a nutshell, that paragraph is like, what do you mean? Looks don't mean everything. Talk to me about that passage. Well, it's about the fact that when we have certain Hollywood induced ideas of what a sniper must be. If I was to say to you, woman sniper, you know, Soviet woman sniper, like we imagine some sort of, you know, James Bond supervillainess, you know, with yes. the icy blue eyes and, you know, probably a very cold expression. And every picture I saw of Mila, I mean, she was 5'4", brunette, these warm brown eyes, this big smile and dimples. And it's like she absolutely did not look cold or, you know, un, un, unemotional. Now, it is true that as a sniper, you to be able to do this, you do need to have a lot of emotional control. You need to be able to suppress your adrenaline. You need to be able to work mostly alone. You need to be able to, you know, have the patience and, you know, the control of your fear to wait in silence and, you know, in the dark for a long, long time for your shot and then to pull a trigger on someone whose face you can see in your sights. But at the same time, just because you have emotional control does not mean you're cold or savage or psychopathic. And so I really wanted to open up the idea that, you know, you, you we might have sort of a cliche idea that, you know, anybody who was a female sniper surely had to be some Siberian superwoman, you know, from the waist who was probably gnawing on bullets in her cradle. But no, this girl was a bookworm. She was a history nerd. She could absolutely geek out about like archaeological sites and books and footnotes. And, you know, she was, you know, she wanted to be a historian. She had the world's nerdiest dissertation in her backpack. I mean, she's, it, she was nothing like any cliche that we might yeah. think about that Hollywood would make her. And I wanted to dig into that because, you know, really the cliche cliches are boring. Let's, let's talk about the woman who is a history nerd and is a book nerd and could absolutely be the girl who shows up at your book club and she's read the book all the way through and she has notes and she has highlight highlighted passages and she's ready to talk about the reading. And then after that, she goes to work and, um, you know, She's a sniper and that these two things can exist at the same time. The, the nerd and the loving and the loving mother and the bookworm and the sniper. But it's such a feminist notion that you're bringing forward too, right? Instead of making women have to look a certain way. And if you're going to be a sniper, you have to be this cold, uncaring person, right? I feel like this is that, that first husband imposing a look on her and you're saying no way, right? Like let's stand up for women. We don't have to fit into that. So bravo. That was amazing that you brought that out. Um, okay, so I want to ask you about one other uh, passage in here because I am that geek, right? The nerd with like underlying. <laughs> yes, we would get along very well, like <laughs> going to the library to look up some passages in order to ask you. Okay, so we're going to be on page 330 here. And we have Mila who is hanging out with her best friend or new friend, right? The first lady, Eleanor Roosevelt. <laughs> Okay. And I just love their, their relationship. So Eleanor, the first lady says, I reminded myself that you must do the thing you think you cannot do always. And generally you find out you can do it after all. And then Mila says, they talk a little bit more. And then Mila says, the mo most important rule there is, is don't miss. So she's saying, if I have to do something, it's going to be that I'm not going to miss. And then the first lady responds, everyone fails. I failed. My husband has failed. You think all his New Deal proposals were dazzling successes? 
He's proposed initiatives that have fallen flat. He's espoused positions for which he was rightly been condemned. He's hosts of enemies who would happily see him dead. He's failed at more than most men ever try, but better that than not to try at all. Dun, 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 dun. I love that, right? Because Mila's thinking, don't miss, don't miss. I have to be perfect. And Eleanor Roosevelt is saying, actually, try, 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 because you're going to miss all the time. Talk about that tension, please. <laughs> How do you think about it? Well, one of the most important things as a writer when you're creating a character is you something important for their growth is that they have a belief that has to change in the course of the book. And I realized that the belief that Mila has that must change is the idea that she can never fail. She must not miss at anything or, you know, the, the results will be catastrophic. And, you know, for a sniper, you know, of course, don't miss. I mean, because, you know, a tiny, you know, mistake can mean the difference between life and death. So this serves her well professionally, but it means that she's very locked up tight personally because she hates to take risks of any kind in her personal life because she might fail. And the thing is, this also ties back into that whole pressure that women put themselves under is that women are the most perfectionist in the world. I swear. It's like we never let ourselves up the hook. We're so convinced we must not fail at anything. And Mila is no exception to that, you know, belief that so many of us have. And I wanted her to learn this from Eleanor, who, you know, was a woman who was endlessly quotable. That one quote of hers, you know, do the thing you think you cannot do. Yes. And so I wanted Mila to really finally start re-examining this toxic belief because of this friendship with Eleanor, who is older and wiser and who has lived not through Mila's life, but who has lived a very different life, but who still has something to offer. And I wanted to address too that, you know, like Franklin Roosevelt, for all that he's the great hero president, you know, here, he is, he certainly did things that we look back at now and you're like, no, you should never have done that. Japanese internment, anyone? I mean, right. no, I mean, he's anybody, even the most, you know, seemingly spotless figure in history has dark spots, has things that they have failed at and has things that they should never have done. But, you know, they, at least the idea is you keep going, you keep trying, you keep trying to do better. And if you fail, you pick yourself back up. And that is the lesson ultimately that Mila has to learn if she's ever going to be happy, if she's ever going to grow. And she starts learning that in this scene with Eleanor. I just love that, that don't miss, because I do think you just, you're so good at her story, right? Not history, like women's history and getting us in there and what women are thinking and feeling. So I just thought that was beautiful. Um, so, but I want to get back to this idea of the woman sniper, right? Don't miss, don't miss. And then here she goes on this crazy tour in America where she's trying to get, you know, help from the Americans, just trying to drum up support for the Soviets. Um, and everyone's going, did that, that woman? really shot 300 people that no and so many people don't believe her right common women are often not believed especially when we do great things like that but throughout the book that is you know even people that she set to train they don't believe that she is the woman who's done all of this so can you talk about writing that character and that doubt in what was that like well, it's one of the things that really stands out very clear from the memoir that Lyudmila Pavlochenko wrote later in life is this steady stream of sexism that she had to push upstream against. Whether it was, you know, walking into a you know room full of new recruits and, you know, they don't believe that she's actually their superior officer. She has to throw her weight around before they are actually willing to take her orders. Or whether it's when she came to the United States 
you know, this woman who is still physically and mentally and emotionally recovering from war wounds, you know, she's not even, you know, a couple of only a couple of months relief, you know, out from active combat, sitting down behind a spotlight and being asked not about, you know, her war experiences or what is brought her to the United States, but being asked, so can you wear lipstick at the front? Can you take hot baths? You know, what is your, what's your, you know, what kind of makeup routine do you have? You know, your skirts a little is, is. And your is underwear. What kind of underwear do you wear? And she's just sitting there like, really? This is, this is what you're asking me. And the fact that nobody's like, well, you're not really a sniper. You know, you're just some propaganda girl with a good story. And she's like, really, really? Okay. And the thing is, is that I wanted to put that in because that comes directly from her memoir and it clearly is very vivid to, to her years later when she was writing about it. But also it made me realize that we really have not necessarily come very far from that because what I re made me remember is that when the Avengers came out, all the actors were going on tour and press junket and all the guys were being asked things like, so what was it like stepping into Captain America's shoes? What was it like getting this this meaty character arc for Iron Man? And then Iron then uh, Scarlett Johansson is there, and they're asking her, "So what workout routine did you have to get into that oh tight cat suit?" And you know, she literally was asking, "Really? That's the question that you right. got for me?" And I just ended up thinking, "Oh wow, we." That's what I thought of when I was yeah. reading about the kind of questions Mila was getting from the American press. It's just like, "Oh boy, we really have not come that far necessarily." Yeah. I know that made me very sad, but also I love that you were pointing it out, right? I mean, I think this is the, the power that we have as writers and with books as you can show how horrible this is, right? Today and back then. Uh, so you mentioned Mila's um, uh, memoirs and you start many of the chapters with the official memoir, right? And then the unofficial version. And so I want to ask you just a little bit about your research. And I know you get this question all the time, but we have people who are listening for the first time being introduced to you. Welcome to the world of Kate Quinn. <laughs> Buy all of her books. Um, who would love to know where did you get this idea and how did you find so much information about the real Mila Pavlichenko? Well, I first ran into her when I was researching two books ago, The Huntress, which was had a very heavy uh, plot theme in there and a, a whole section of plot about the Night Witches, which is the uh, Soviet all-female regiment of bomber pilots that flew against Hitler's Eastern Front. So as I was reading and researching about these incredible women war heroines in the Soviet Union, suddenly all this other information about Soviet women war heroines was crossing my timeline and you know falling into my lap at, you know in the same articles and books because the Soviet Union was the only allied nation in World War II that actually allowed women to physically fight in combat officially. And so all of a sudden, all these women were coming up, you know, in my research. And chief among them was Lyudmila Pavlichenko, who was probably the most famous. Uh, and so I read her story and, you know, my jaw hit the floor. And I thought, I'm tucking this her in my back pocket for later because there's no way I can't write this story. I can't put her in this book, but I'm putting her in for later. So I just sort of tucked her away and I thought, well, I'll get to her. I know I will. And then I ended up writing The Rose Code first. But then after that, I found, I realized, I, I think it's time. It's time for yeah. her story. And so I was really... Uh, in very good hands there because she did write this memoir and the real thing and it's the reason I did you know start my chapters with you know the memoir the official and unofficial versions is that you know her memoir is very personal and it is her words from her mouth but at the same time you know Soviet propaganda did edit and censor in places so you kind of have to read through this sort of fence of 
propaganda that's been put in place. And, you know, like you can see the real woman behind it very clearly. It's very clear when her voice comes out, but you kind of have to peer through, you know, through the bars and yeah. um, sort of filter out the stuff that either got put in there or got taken out because the state had certain things it either did or did not want said. So that was really a little bit of a filtering process. And so the reason I really did choose to put that, you know, official and unofficial version is so that I could say from the beginning, you know, that the memoir, as good as it is, is not the whole story. And which is why I did take some liberties here and there about, you know, what did I put in or what did I leave out? And I do encourage anyone who's more interested in this woman, you know, read the memoir and see for yourself. It's it's really fascinating. Reading. It is in English. It has been translated. Yes, I do not read so, Russian. Yeah. So for anybody uh, I, wants to know. Yes. So um, <laughs> I'm very glad it has been translated and put into English and it is definitely worth reading. It's surprisingly yeah. uh, readable and fascinating. It's not all, you know, you know, barrage of propaganda. It's really interesting. And I will say that your um, author's note at the end of Diamond Eye was super detailed and amazingly helpful in saying exactly where you took liberties and what was real and then lists of books we could go and read for those of us that love to go into the library, right? So anybody who wants more information and to know exactly what is quote unquote real in this book, well, you can read, you know, Kate tells us very clearly. So that was amazing. Um, one thing that I wanted to ask you about, you touched on very, very briefly there, as you said, of course, women were allowed to serve in the Soviet army. But then you have this line somewhere early in the book where you say women were allowed to serve and they were allowed to fight. But of course, they also had to be responsible still for the children and the laundry, right? As long as they basically did all of their womenly duties, they could, of course, join the Red Army. <laughs> I see yes, you're it's one of those, to that. Yes. It's one of those things where um, the Soviet Union tended to talk a good game about like women are totally equal and equal with men. And um, that's a very nice idea. And they did try to go in that direction in a lot of ways. Um, but it's not to say that they were perfect. Of course, they were not. What it really tended to mean was, yes, women could enter male spheres. You did have more women doctors, women engineers, women in factory jobs, you know, and women in the military and in politics in spheres that Western women traditionally did not enter. But it still meant that um, pretty much the women could do the men's jobs as long as they went home and then did the women's jobs too. Uh, the rearing the children and the doing of the cooking and the household chores is still something that fell on the female sex. So it was kind of like the equality for uh, Soviet women was less about there's total division, fair division of labor, and you can enter these spheres, then you can do the man's jobs as long as you go home and do the traditional women's jobs too. Mm -hmm. As long as you <laughs> so, still hold the second shift, right? That's what we're calling yeah, it. Yeah, pretty much. Yeah. And yeah. most of the... Awesome. Um, Russian and Ukrainian women I've talked to have said, yeah, that's pretty correct. And I'm not sure we're that far out nowadays. In fact, there was a hilarious story um, that I heard, heard. It was a Ukrainian woman who went to my mom's gym who said International Women's Day is a huge thing where she was born. And she said that is because, you know, the men in my the men in my country are pigs. And we we're just really, really? <laughs> She's just like, yes, International Women's Day is a very big deal for us. Oh, that's like, amazing. Oh my okay. God, I love that. Okay, we're almost out of time, but before we go, I have two more questions for you. One, I am dying to hear about your next book because at your current pace, you're like one book a year. Are you still on pace? Is it an, is it next year? And what is it? 
I don't think it'll be next year. It's going to be a little longer than that. This oh. this book got written very quickly, and I think honestly because I was in lockdown and it was an escape, okay. so uh, that's why it happened so fast. But the next book is tentatively titled The Briar Club. It is about an all-female boarding house in Washington, D.C. in the 1950s. And so it's diving into the Cold War, McCarthyism, the Red Scare, all of that very gritty and interesting territory. And I'm really enjoying it. I cannot wait. I'm ready. Whenever you're ready to share. That sounds amazing. And then my last question for you is I have lots of listeners who are writers and they always are looking for advice. So what kind of advice do you have these days for writers coming out of lockdown? You know, I don't know if things changed or what advice do you have for us? I would always say my first bit of advice is two quotes. Uh, one from my uh, active duty military husband, which is embrace the suck. And what that really comes down <laughs> to is um, accept the fact, give yourself permission to be bad. Um, because everybody's first drafts are terrible and mine are too, believe me. But the thing is, is that most people, I see a lot of new writers who never get past that voice in your head that says, this is terrible. You can never do this. What are you thinking? This is so awful. Just tear it up. And they never get anything written. So get it down. Give yourself permission to be bad and just get it down. And that leads to the second piece of advice, which is from Nora Roberts, the queen herself, who said something along the lines of, I can fix a bad page, but I can't fix a blank page. So give yourself permission to be bad. Embrace the suck. Just get those words down because once they're down, you can fix them. I promise. I love it. Kate, you are such an inspiration. Thank you so much for joining me. For all of you out there, The Diamond Eye by Kate Quinn. This book is unbelievable. I absolutely loved it. I might even say it's her best, although I love the others so much that it's hard to really compare. Go out and buy a copy right now. Thank you so much for joining me, Kate, and I hope you'll come back for your next book. Count me in. I'm absolutely there as soon as it's out. Thank you.